What is up, everybody? Just wanted to jump in real quick up front here on the edit and make a disclaimer. So today I had to pull the audio from Twitter Spaces. There was a malfunction human error on the Telegram side. Uh, and you'll see why Telegram is my prim primary place where I do these streams. The audio quality is much, much better. Uh, but at least we have the recording and you get you can get everything that I say. It's just uh, not the highest quality audio. So sorry about that. It will be fixed in the future. That being said, hope you enjoy. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another live stream. My name is Ansel Linder. This is Bitcoin and Markets. Happy Monday to everyone. Hope you had a great weekend. Hope you had time to spend with friends and family. Get out and unwind a little bit from the drama that we're seeing in the space right now in Bitcoin. Um, for that reason, I'm not going to touch a ton on FTX. Of course, I have to mention something about it and, and give some of my opinions on this. but uh, try not to touch on it too much, but we are going to talk about FTX. We're going to talk about uh, the dollar and the oil chart because I think those are two important charts out there. Of course, the Bitcoin chart. Um, Clark Moody and a tweet that I responded to this morning discuss something about if we want normies in the in Bitcoin or if that's who we should be targeting. Uh, should we be targeting normies or who else should we target? Uh, because uh, Clark Moody says a lot of normies are put off by this recent drama uh talk more about bitcoin the hash rate stuff that's going on in bitcoin some of the fundamentals uh, because people are losing sight of the fundamentals and looking at this financial sell-off that we're seeing that really well we'll get into that get into the price stuff uh what else that's it and then at the end i open it up for questions from guys over on telegram also telegram is where i post all the charts and most of the articles throughout the day that i'm reading so if you guys want to uh, become part of that community, at least see my stream of consciousness over there, you can go to t.me forward slash Bitcoin and markets. I appreciate everybody that has become a member and is uh, participating in the conversation over there. It's going great. So welcome to the people on Twitter spaces. Hope you guys are doing well. Simulcasting on spaces and Telegram. I also post this on my podcast app later in the day and the, my Rumble channel, my YouTube channel is still terminated that my appeal has not been answered have not heard anything back from youtube yet so uh, it's they said 48 hours but it's been about a week so we'll see if i hear anything about that uh, if i don't hear anything in a couple months i'll probably just maybe make a new youtube channel i'm not supposed to do that in the termination letter that they send it says specifically on there i am not to create another youtube channel ever I have been terminated from the platform. So we'll see <laughs> we'll see how that works. But anyways, um, yeah, let's get on to this FTX thing. So I guess the biggest update is just how much it has been picked up by the mainstream media. It has really become a phenomenon. I mean, it is probably the biggest Ponzi since Madoff to blow up and probably dwarfs. Madoff, really, if you think about FTX and Alameda and all the associated, uh, you know, BlockFi and and everything that's going to collapse from this FTX blow up, um, it's much bigger than twenty billion dollars, which is what Madoff was. 
of course, the granddaddy or the big daddy of all Ponzi schemes that will blow up eventually is, of course, Ethereum. And that, can you imagine the, the epicness of that? Um, so anyway, I don't think that's going to blow up like FTX did because, of course, Ethereum isn't the same thing as a leveraged centralized exchange. I mean, it has a lot of the same characteristics, but Ethereum will most likely have some sell-offs and just bleed out over time. If you look at the chart of any Bitcoin over time, um, they usually have one or two pump cycles, and then they just go off into obscurity, right? And that's how I kind of expect Ethereum to end up. There are a couple coins that have not followed that trajectory and that would be litecoin and dogecoin um, ethereum has had two pretty significant pumps so it is uh, already starting to become an outlier but uh, i don't think it will escape the fact especially going to the merge proof of stake uh, i don't i don't see it coming back from that it's already ofac compliant i mean there there's been this um I don't, it's not a conspiracy theory, really, but it's just this acceptance in Bitcoin for 10 years that these altcoins, there will be like state actors behind altcoins. And CBDCs are kind of an embodiment of this type of attack as well. But, um, you know, like the government is behind Ethereum because that will take a little luster off Bitcoin and it will slow Bitcoin down and perhaps give the market time to find an exploit in Bitcoin or, or something like that, right? And so these that's been kind of a thought process in the Bitcoin community for a long time. And it looks like that's what happened here with FTX. Uh, that's exactly what happened. Now, I'm, I'm not jumping on the bandwagon that this was a deliberate money laundering operation. Uh, I think that the corrupt politicians on both sides here, so from the U.S. and from Ukraine, uh, they both had money in FTX. They both used FTX to move money around. But corrupt Ukrainian politicians aren't necessarily going to be sending money back to Democrats, uh, and would they probably won't be doing that through FTX. They'll use a regular bank. I mean, these regular banks are, you know, they're constantly being uh, find for all of this type of money laundering and uh, supporting drug cartels and, and all sorts of things. So, uh, you know, they don't need FTX. They don't need Ethereum or FTT token or Tether or anything like that. They can do that with UBS <laughs> or Deutsche Bank or whatever. They don't need uh, the crypto, quote, quote unquote, crypto industry. So I'm not really uh, biting off on that too much, but that has been a big Thing that's been picked up. Jack Posobiec uh, picked that up on Twitter and has been running with it. I think there's some confusion between donations for like FTX accepting donations for Ukraine and Ukraine making donations to the Democrat Party. You know, I think there's some confusion with who is donating what to whom. So uh, that, that should get worked out and, and whatever. But this doesn't affect the bottom line fundamentals of Bitcoin. It turns out they had nearly zero Bitcoin on the exchange, actually. Um, 
they were short what was it short like 53,000 bitcoins in open interest um but they had like one or two bitcoins on their balance sheet so that this was all paper bitcoin this has nothing to do with the fundamentals of bitcoin it's just all leveraged rehypothecation on top this is the exact thing that gold bugs have been talking about for a very long time right that there, there's this manipulation of paper gold uh, to keep the price suppressed and of course nothing has ever blown up or happened for, from that accusation but this is literally there was tens of thousands of short positions open by the exchange themselves against bitcoin naked shorts basically so that is pretty crazy but um imagine if this whole thing didn't happen because remember this thing like i just said doesn't affect the fundamentals of bitcoin FTX does not affect the fundamentals of Bitcoin. And what happened to the other things that Bitcoin has been correlated with over the last year since the CPI? Well, they've all pumped. So if we go back and re we rewind the clock to 7 November when this whole thing kind of started happening and just take FTX out of it, where would Bitcoin be? By the fundamentals and by correlation, Bitcoin would be much higher. I mean, stocks are up i think it's five percent or six percent since cpi so you know bitcoin is down 20 percent. so just reverse that bitcoin would be 24 25,000 at this point on solid footing with a capitulation of miners that has just taken place you know and the hash ribbons just turned back into a buy um about a month ago so the, the whole bitcoin fundamental spectrum here is covered in a bullish fashion and there was also a lot of bullish stuff about the chart here breaking out of this descending triangle trying to find higher uh, a path higher and then cpi comes out and bitcoin would have pumped and it would have been really locked in and confirming this breakout of this lower consolidation pattern but that didn't happen with ftx and I'll, all i'll say here is that you know the fundamentals haven't changed. Um, the fundamentals are still very bullish for Bitcoin. Okay. Um, let's move on to some charts here. Again, guys on Twitter Spaces, thank you for joining. My name is Ansel Leonard. This is Bitcoin and Markets. And it's a Telegram live stream that I simulcast onto Twitter Spaces. So if you want to see all the charts and see all my links and stuff, you got to join the Telegram at t.me for slash Bitcoin and Markets. Members, at bitcoinandmarkets.com can comment and we have a little community there so um check out the telegram but let's go and take a look at a bitcoin chart so the weekly is looking like it's having a second bullish divergence here um, in within a few weeks of each other so let's see one two three four five six weeks separate these two bullish divergences in the Bitcoin chart, and these will be the first, these are the first weekly bullish divergences ever in Bitcoin in the history of the Bitstamp chart, which is one of the oldest exchanges. So this is a pretty big deal, I think, and pretty interesting. Um, it does not look 
the greatest on the daily or even the hourly. Let me pull up the hourly and I'll post that chart into the telegram. Let me get rid of this. Okay. So this is, it's just looking kind of droopy still. I don't like going sideways like this because Bitcoin tends to make a capitulation bottom and rally up. Look what happened with COVID. Um, there, there's a few things that are in common with COVID at, from this dump to that dump. And I did post a chart here about, uh, so Coinbase has seen its second highest volume. Uh, let's see. Weekly volume, second highest weekly volume. And the, the highest was the COVID crash. Um, there's also things like weekly RSI and, and weekly measurements of being oversold. These are very similar to COVID. So uh, I think that there is a chance here that we're forming a bottom right now. But like I said, Bitcoin tends to bottom like COVID with a with a wick downward. Um, I'll also add that a lot of uh, Bitcoin has been being withdrawn from exchanges. You guys have probably seen that. A lot of Bitcoin is coming off exchanges, like record amounts of Bitcoin coming off the exchange, going into, you know, your keys. So uh, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. And that is obviously a good thing longer term because that means that it's going into strong hands that are going to hold it uh, and people aren't going to, you know, panic dump their Bitcoin. But at the same time, that decreases the liquidity, the depth in the order books, and you can get wicks lower. So in that situation, I could see a wick, you know, a few thousand dollars lower, but that marks the capitulation bottom. Um, I am pleasantly surprised at how well the price has held up. And that sounds kind of funny, but June low was 17,500. Right now we're sitting at 16,500 after the largest Ponzi scheme, recorded Ponzi scheme in history, in the entire world, blew up in the Bitcoin space. And Bitcoin is only $1,000 lower than the June low. So that is, to me, surprisingly resilient. You would think if this huge $100 billion Ponzi scheme blows up, uh, Bitcoin would sell off to at least like 12, 10,000. But no, it's holding up at 16. That tells me that there's a lot of support. There's a lot of Bitcoiners stacking sats here. But with the lower or, uh, volume on the order book, the lower amount of Bitcoin on exchanges, you have the, the uh, possibility for very volatile move to the downside and a big bounce. And that would mark the capitulation low for Bitcoin. What am I expecting? I mean, I'm a permable, I think. There is a 50-50 right now, whether we are marking the bottom right now or if we sell off. But like I said, usually Bitcoin tends to have these long capitulation wicks to mark the bottom, just like COVID. So, all right, what's next? Um, I did post a chart about the hash rate. And the hash rate is staying very elevated, even though over the last... A uh, few weeks, we've seen a lot of obviously pain with the uh, public Bitcoin miners. I think they're down 80, 90% on the year. 
And before this, before the big FTX sell-off, then we, you know, the mining industry was just turning the corner and started to get healthy again. And now since the sell-off, these public miners are really struggling even more now. So I, I do expect some miners to be acquired. I expect some turnover in the industry, but that is healthy. That is healthy. That's just going to make the mining industry much more uh, robust and resilient going forward. So I think this is good. All right. What else do we have? All right. Let's talk about Clark Moody here. Let me bring up this tweet. Really like Clark Moody. Um, he was a friend of the podcast for a long time. And he's done some good work in the space. Of course, he has that Bitcoin dashboard. And I believe he works at Crypto Watch now, uh, but I'm not, I'm not certain about that. But anyway, um, he says here, hearing from normies that the FTX collapse, collapse confirmed their skepticism of Bitcoin, we have lots of work to do. My response was, normies have no foresight or savings typically. Why are they being courted? They are the late majority by definition. Normies are much less important than large capital allocators. So if you guys have been listening to my content for a while, you'll know that uh, I, I don't, I have some weird thing against evangelism. Just like everybody, when they get into Bitcoin, they fall down the rabbit hole and they need to tell people, they need to talk about it. They're, all their family functions, they're talking about Bitcoin. With all their friends, they're talking about Bitcoin. They, they want to form these initiatives to go out and spread the good word and evangelize Bitcoin. And that's fine, okay? I went through a very similar phase, but I don't know how much that helps because normies are the weak hands. Normies are the people that kept their Bitcoin on exchanges, that levered up. They got caught up with DeFi and NFTs. And so they are, the, they are not necessarily the ones that we need to court. Uh, it's, it's similar to why I don't think that poor countries um, are going to really matter for Bitcoin adoption in the long run because, you know, one, they don't have very much money to invest. And two, they don't have much experience with having wealth and having money. So when these normies, or maybe you could talk about uh, impoverished countries or whatever, they get access to, maybe they get into Ethereum and they pump 20, 30x, 50x, whatever, they get into some token. Now they have all this wealth, what are they going to do? Well, they don't have experience with managing money. And so they're going to invest it most likely into scams. You know, and so is it appropriate? Is it worthwhile to to have this evangelism? I mean, everyone has to obey their own incentives. I'm big on that. Everyone has to find their own path. Everyone has to listen to their own ideas and thoughts and, and follow your own incentives, what you are drawn to do. But I don't think it helps on average. Um, the biggest people that we need to court are the capital allocators, the big pools of money in the world, you know, if they just allocated 5% to Bitcoin, that would be like, oh, how many trillions of dollars into Bitcoin? And that's enough to make Bitcoin globally adopted. So 
that is the people, those are the people that we need to court. I don't really care if normies are skeptical of Bitcoin. They are the late majority. They are the ones that are going to follow what everyone else does. So anyway, okay, that's enough of that one. Let's talk about some geopolitical stuff now. So if you guys are on Twitter spaces, hope this is still coming through okay. My phone falls asleep and I just hope that I'm still broadcasting sometimes on, on Twitter spaces. But um, if you guys are new to the show, I do a lot of geopolitical content as well. My big theory is that the dollar is credit-based money as a euro-dollar system, and credit eventually dies in a collapse. It doesn't die in inflation, okay? Hyperinflation happens when you have unbacked money and you're printing it or debasing it or whatever, but the dollar is backed by credit, okay? So for every dollar that's created, there's that, that's a, a liability to the bank. But they also create an asset at the bank as well. They create the loan. So it's not unbacked. It's backed by the asset that is created in the same exact instant as the money. So that type of system, which is credit-backed system, a credit-based system, it always dies in a deflation, in a default. And a default is when the money gets destroyed. So the dollar will continue to get stronger because this is a, a, the dollar-based system globally. Trillions and trillions of dollar-denominated debt. I mean, foreign governments issue debt in dollars. <laughs> you know, it's like it's not their currency, but they, they issue government bonds denominated in dollars. And that's just the government, what the businesses do too. So it's a dollar-based system and it will get, the dollar will continue to strengthen. But, um, so that is that. Plus right now, I think adding a geopolitical spin on things. So we're in a unique place in history. The reason why a credit-based system, which has never really occurred, especially globally uh, in the history of mankind, the reason why it was able to flourish for the last 75 years is because of the con specific conditions that existed after World War II, with the U.S. being pretty much the sole superpower. Of course, we had the Cold War with the Soviet Union, um, but the U.S. Uh, kept more than half of the world in a free trade area like we'll protect you against the Soviets as long as you follow our rules. We built these international institutions, the UN, the IMF, uh, the WTO, World Court, all these international institutions are since World War II. And then of course, after the Soviet Union fell, it was a singular hegemonic standard. So in that, in that scenario, when there was such a disparity between the most powerful nation and the second most powerful nation, you know, or everyone else, there was such a disparity that a dollar-based system that's based on credit could survive. But as that ends, you know, as we get to the end of this credit-based system, when we're saturated with debt, 
when there's no more product, productive debt out there, the tendency is towards deflation, or at least the pressure is towards deflation and depression, and a breakup of these international institutions, a breakup of international trust, a breakup of international trade. And that's, that's all connected, okay? The form of the money, the specific uh, physical circumstances after World War II and for the last 75 years, all that is connected. And as we go away from that era that is programmed in because of the debt-based money, you can't get out of a debt problem by adding more debt, that the end of this system, the, the world will turn back to, I mean, it will be characterized by lots of deglobalization, breaking up of uh, alliances like NATO and the EU. So that the, when I look at this geopolitical situation, I look at what's going on in the world, that is my framework that I'm, I'm looking at all this from. So now let's take a look at a few stories. The first one is a little bit quicker, so I'll go through it first. It's from John Lee on Twitter. I do put the Thread Reader app link in Telegram this morning, or I did. And here we go. So quite the report from Bloomberg UK. The more that one reads and hears about these new chip controls and how the Biden admin has run this, the more it looks like a dog's breakfast. Japan and the Netherlands were ready to formalize multilateral controls for five nanometer chips, but the U.S. then wanted to raise that threshold to more mature technologies that would lead to a bigger impact on chip companies' China sales. That's when talks collapsed. So I guess more mature chips, that would be 7 nanometer, 14 nanometer, those types of chips uh, that were, are used in more broad applications than the 5 nanometer chips. So they're ready to sign a deal to do some sort of sanctions on the 5 nanometer chip technology and IP and even experts maybe because, you know, the U.S. cracked down on um, U.S. citizens working for Chinese companies. Um, they expand, expanded that from the five nanometers to more mature technologies, and that's when the talks broke down. Let's continue here. They were promised that the government wouldn't move ahead with the controls before having allies on board. Hmm. However, officials failed to convince partners or inform the chip firms of their plans to implement the measures in October, just days before they were no longer picking up calls. <laughs> so the Biden administration was no longer picking up calls from their allies or the chip fabs, you know, and that is interesting. Um, this is an example of all paths lead to deglobalization. Sorry, I moved my mic there. Um, all paths, all paths lead to deglobalization. No matter what the Biden administration does, no matter what the Trump administration did or what the, the next administration will do, all roads either lead, like, here's an example, in Ukraine, if the US and NATO didn't do anything, they would lose influence because Russia would expand into Ukraine. I mean, it would have been over in a matter of weeks. But getting involved puts them more at risk of like a bigger collapse in 
all of NATO, like NATO can disintegrate from this in the end. The EU could disintegrate from this. So no matter what they do, they're faced with a lose-lose scenario. And it's the same thing here with China. So they're pushing forward. They're, they're going to, unilaterally, they're going ahead. So let's continue. For the China hawks within the Biden admin, early October was seen as the only window they had to unveil new restrictions before it got too close to the meeting between Biden and Xi at the G20 summit. Failing to get allies for your own firms, or sorry, or your own firms on board isn't good for leverage either. But it also, remember, it happened around the 20th Party Congress. Um, they timed it for that as well. Initial readouts suggest that cramming these new controls in before the Biden Xi meeting didn't move the dial with the Chinese side at all, which if you've been following the direction of Chinese cyberspace policy under Xi is hardly surprising. All right. So that's that. I will link to an archive of the Bloomberg article he's talking about in Telegram here as well. So you guys can check that out. Um, moving on. Next story is about this blow up between Italy and France. And right now it's not a complete blow up, but there are major politicians talking back and forth, getting pretty upset. So this is an article from Zero Hedge. Quote, lack of humanity, end quote. France threatens Italy with consequences over stubborn refusal to accept migrants. Now remember the rise of Le Pen in France, who won, didn't win the runoff with Macron, but the parliament shifted drastically towards the Le Pen side. Just you know, weeks after Le Pen lost the election. And Maloney won in Italy. So there is this big growing divide away from globalism towards more nationalism. And Maloney was very strict on saying, you know, the, the migrant issue is a huge problem and we're going to fix it. So let's uh, read this article here. France will welcome the Ocean Viking. And it's 234 illegal immigrants on an exceptional basis, President Macron's interior minister, Gerard Damarin, announced on Thursday, November 10th, after several days of wrangling with Italy. Damarin also said that a third of the passengers would be relocated in France after disembarking from the port in Toulon. Be uh, quote, because of Italy's stubborn refusal and lack of humanity, France had to allow the ship to dock, French Minister Catherine Colonna noted. The Ocean Viking flies a Norwegian flag, but is chartered by the French NGO SOS Mediterranean, whose headquarters are in Marseille. It had been waiting for 20 days for permission to dock in an Italian port, but the Maloney government refused. The French interior minister has described this refusal as incomprehensible and selfish. On November 11th, France's EU affairs minister, Lawrence Boone, further said that trust is broken with Italy. The French government has also called Italy's stance unacceptable behavior and suggested through its spokesman, Olivier Varane. Man, I'm going to butcher all of these French names. 
that this could in the future have an impact on next generation EU funds paid to Italy. Olivier Varane said on the public radio France, in, uh, he said, quote, there are clear European rules accepted by the Italians who are, in fact, the first beneficiaries of European financial sol solidarity mechanism. Uh, so I wanted to hone in on that. So he's saying that this is a violation by Italy. They signed in, signed on to these treaties. They signed on to these agreements. And they also benefit the most from being in the EU through this financial solidarity mechanism. But remember, the most traded government bond in Europe is the Italian Italian government bond. It wouldn't be it, it would be the German government bond, but they just have such a balanced budget that they don't issue enough to provide enough liquidity for the market to use just German boons. So the Italian government bond is what they use mostly over there and there's a plethora of that of italian bonds so um yeah they are they are beneficiaries of this fund but they also provide a lot of the mechanism for the liquidity in the financial system in europe all right let's continue a statement by the italian prime minister Giorgio maloney who claimed it had been the duty of paris from the outset to accept the ship was quote in total contradiction to our exchanges end quote Colonia insisted, quote, there will be consequences if Italy persists with this attitude, she warned. However, as the Italian newspaper, oh, <laughs> I'm going to get that wrong, pointed out on November 9th, Italy has taken charge of three of the four boats that requested to disembark illegal immigrants at the beginning of November. Okay, let's skip down here because this is going to get juicy. Okay, however, France's interior minister on Thursday announced retaliatory measures against Italy for not allowing the disembarkation of 234 illegal immigrants aboard the French NGO SOS Mediterranean ship. France is canceling the relocation agreement under which it was to take charge of some 3,000 asylum seekers from Italy by the summer of 2023, and it will strengthen controls at the Italian border. Oh man, that does not sound good for the EU, right guys? Worse still, the French government is asking its European partners to sus suspend relocations from Italy as well. Quote, French, uh, France lectures us, but turns away 80 uh, migrants a day, ran the headline in the newspaper on Thursday. From the beginning of January to the end of October this year, 85,000 immigrants landed in Italy, according to official figures, compared to 53,000 in last year and 27,000 in 2020. I would like to see what it was in 2019 because, you know, 2020 and 2021 were COVID years. Um, so anyways, the relocation mechanism in which France and Germany participate only provides for 10,000 relocations of asylum seekers. Among those will, uh, who will have landed in Italy, Spain, and Greece for all of 2022. So Italy, Spain, and Greece, but only Italy has seen 85,000. And only the agreement is only for 10,000 relocations from all of those countries. So that that is putting a disproportionate burden on Italy. And one of the reasons why Giorgio Maloney's parties, uh, her you know, party got elected. And as the newspaper pointed out in another article published November 11th, while Italy 
has witnessed the landing of over 60,000 illegal migrants over the course of the last five months, France has accepted to transfer from Italy of only 38 asylum seekers during this period. Quote, so the decision to break promises had already been made, the newspaper wrote. Quote, all that was missing was the excuse to make it official. And it is also clear that Paris, Paris's retreat does not stem from our government's choice to initiate a more assertive confrontation with the NGO ships. All right, let's continue going down here. Um, in addition to all this, it has to be said that the Ocean Vikings free shuttle service for illegal immigrants making the trip from Libya to Italy is not only run by an NGO based in France, but it is mostly funded by left-wing local governments in France, including the city of Paris. It is a large boat capable of taking aboard several hundred immigrants at a time. They've had up to 500 and costing about 14,000 per day, 14,000 euros per day to operate. The French alternative media outlet, La Letter, <laughs> something the Letter Patriot, uh, has just published an internal document of SOS Mediterranean that can be seen here and which shows the subsidy, uh, subsidies that they have received recently from French municipalities, departments, and regions. Quote, on its website, SOS Mediterranean lists a total of 83 partner local governments, comments the paper. In addition to majority cities or major cities such as Lyon, Paris, Bordeaux, Strasbourg, and Grenoble, the NGO can count on significant financial support from nine departments. And then uh, let's see. Those, those must be states uh, within France. I, I don't know the names. They're not familiar to me. On top of this, there are regional grants from Brittany, Burgundy, uh, and more. Unsurprising, all these departments and regions are governed by left-wing majorities, end quote. To make matters worse, the French alt-right website notes, quote, in February 2017, SOS Mediterranean received the label of, label of great national cause directly from the prime minister. This has enabled it to broadcast its communication campaigns free of charge on public radio stations and television channels. In January 2021, an appeal was launched by 28 French left-wing local authorities to provide moral and financial support to SOS Mediterranean and its 69-meter-long and 15-meter-wide Ocean Viking ship. So that's the one they're talking about here. Of course, these 28 local governments committed themselves to providing such support. The mayors of Paris, Lyon, Marseille, Lille, Bordeaux, and Grenoble were among the signatories. Quote, by accepting for the first time that a boat disembarks migrants in a French port, Emmanuel Macron is sending a dramatic signal of leniency. And that is from Marine Le Pen. She tweeted that on November 10th. Quote, with this decision, he can no longer make anyone believe that he wants to put an end to massive and anarchic immigration. All right, it goes on a little bit longer, but uh, as you can see, this is interesting because it's uncovering some of these ties, just like FTX is uncovering some ties in the Bitcoin space and in the crypto space. Uh, this incident here with the Ocean Viking ship uh, taking immigrants from Libya specifically to Italy it is an NGO funded by French left-wing municipalities. You can't make this stuff up, guys.
<laughs> and so Giorgio Maloney said, nah, it's not happening. You got to go to France. They paid for it. They're getting you. And so that happened. We'll see what happens here in, in the future. You know, there's lots of funny business going on with, with holding funds from Hungary and Poland. I mean, Poland kind of capitulated, but Poland, I think, is going to come up in the next year as being a hardliner and really wanting to push the position on Russia forward, even if there is some sort of peace agreement that comes out. Because over the last few days, we've heard more and more talk, sorry, about um, U.S. officials being willing to talk that there is some maybe behind the scenes diplomacy going on in Ukraine between the U.S. and Russia. Uh, if that manifests into some sort of ceasefire or something, will Poland be the hardliner that they are wanting to push forward with this, push forward with more sanctions, push forward with more weapons uh, into Ukraine? They are the big pushers for all this. And so, um, you know, there, there's different forces that are going on in the EU. It's not all. It's not all agreement in Brussels, right? It's it's very contentious situation, a growing contention in the EU. So I think that's very interesting. All right, that's where I'm going to end it for now, guys. Open it, open the mic up for you on Telegram. Beto or Spagball, got anything? All right, so just to sum up today, for those guys listening on Twitter Spaces still, um, Bitcoin's fundamentals have not changed. FTX is the largest Ponzi scheme pretty much the world has ever seen that has blown up at this point. And yet the Bitcoin price is only $1,000 lower than July, uh, June, the June low. So that is somewhat bullish. Stock market is higher. Other things are that Bitcoin's correlated with are going higher. So Bitcoin's fundamentals are pointed upward and we'll see where that goes. But also, on a broader scale, there is deglobalization happening everywhere, everywhere we look. And that's bad for credit markets. That's bad for credit-based money. And in that situation, people go towards a money that they can trust, that is a neutral asset between countries that takes over, that becomes a proxy for trust. Because if you're using a credit-based system, you are trusting that credit basis and you're trusting one side implicitly, at least one party, one central third party somewhere. And in the future, as we go away from this credit based system, we, we, we need to go to a neutral asset. Uh, so that is the natural evolution towards Bitcoin is what we're going to see. So anyway, um, that's it, guys. Thanks for joining. Ansel Linder, Bitcoin and Markets. Check out BitcoinandMarkets.com. And uh, don't forget FedWatch on the Bitcoin Magazine's YouTube channel, Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern. I'll see you guys there this week. All right, that's it. See you next time.